Hello. Welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. He is risen. He's risen. Uh, Wow. What a great day. We got some prize seats right here, if anyone's uh, looking for them. Are are they bad seats? Like, like you didn't shower, right? Okay. <laughs> oh, what a great morning. Uh, yeah, the beach last night was amazing. Uh, every, you know, Jesus is here. I was uh, sharing with, you know, we just came back from Egypt, Jordan, and Israel, and I was sharing with uh, our tour guide in Israel who happened to, she's Greek Catholic and traces her family roots all the way back to the first century. Uh, She says, we never left Israel. Uh, Been here from the start of the church. And uh, uh, I was telling her all the things that uh, we've seen God do in Iraq and and the, the amazing testimonies of Muslims coming to faith in Jesus Christ through miracles, through visions, through uh, dreams, which is just phenomenal. Everyone says it's never, never in the last uh, 1,500 years has anything like this happened. And she looked at me and she says, well, of course, Jesus is alive. <laughs> you know, and I, I thought about that, that, you know, most of us, uh, we talk about Christianity instead of Jesus, you know, as if, if we're following some kind of philosophy, some kind of a mental system that varies. It's similar to other systems, but varies. In, but the, the uniqueness is we follow uh, a person who got up, right? Jesus Christ, the resurrection. So what a great day. By the way, if you're a visitor here, this is the only time you'll see me in a suit. I'm just warning you, if you, you know, I'm not dressing up to impress you to hope you'll come back. Uh, it, it's, it, I figured out that churches usually had two different dress systems, dress codes. One is uh, you dress up to show God your Sunday best. And I always thought, is he really impressed? <laughs> you know, it's like, whoa, that's a nice hat. Amazing. Uh, <laughs> And so the other philosophy, which is the one we tend to follow, is God accepts us just the way we are, and uh, so we're not impressing anybody, and we just come as we are. But there's a third, and the third is we sometimes dress up to celebrate. Uh, weddings are like that. We hope you don't just come as you are. We, we, we want you to celebrate, right? If you go to a a gala affair, you dress up, because there are those moments still, believe it or not, in chilled out San Diego, uh, where we say, this is a great day. Anyway, if you see pastors and uh, directors around the campus dressed up, now you know what it's about. We're not impressing you. <laughs> We're celebrating the resurrection. Well, uh, he really is risen. Can you uh, respond to that? He is risen. He is risen indeed, yes. Well, I want to talk about the indeed part, uh, which would be truly, emphatically, he is risen. So let's take a moment to pray, and we're going to dive into the word of God. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that you literally raised Jesus from the dead. And because of that, 
we have new life. Because of that, we are forgiven of our sins. Because of that, the story is true. And now because you are risen from the dead, would you be in our midst by your Holy Spirit? Would you take the pages of the word of God and make them come alive? Would you open our minds to see what we've not seen and open up our hearts to receive what we have not received? Lord, this is your moment, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, I want to rebrand Thomas. What's his adjectival nickname? Doubting Thomas. I want to rebrand that to Believing Thomas. How many of you have been called a Doubting Thomas? Someone has just said, oh yeah, there you go. And um, only one person? Am I confessing too much about myself? I, I, I respond, when someone calls me a doubter, I say, I'm a realist. I am not doubting. I just don't go along with all the gimmicks and like, woo, 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 woo. You know, I, I'm the guy that says, you know, show me. And I'm not even from Missouri. Uh, but I, I, want, I want the data because there's so much anecdotal, so much emotion, so much this and that floating around, particularly in the greenhouse of Southern California, where I grew up, that I I want someone to show me the data. And fortunately, Thomas, because of his realism, we have the data. And I'm gonna show it, so we're gonna rebrand Thomas and make him look good from now on. And so we come, to the passage found in John chapter 20, verse 19, which reads like this. On the evening of the first day of the week. By the way, this is the first day of the week, did you know? And if you've ever wondered why we worship on Sunday, the first day of the week, it goes all the way back to the origins of the church, did you know? Let me just clear this up. And by the way, this is just an hors d'oeuvre. This is not the message. This, I, I'm giving this to you free. <laughs> All right. Um, so, because Jesus rose on Sunday in the early church, they immediately considered it resurrection day. So for 52 weeks a year, every Sunday is celebrated as resurrection day. And this started in the Jewish community, not the Gentile community. The Jewish community, probably the first 70,000 believers were all Jewish, hadn't gone out to the rest of the world yet. And they understood that Saturday was Shabbat. We're not changing that from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. It's, It's the Sabbath. But Jesus got up on Sunday So they continued to celebrate Shabbat on Saturday and then would have church Sunday evening. What did they do the rest of the... It was a work day. Sunday was a work day, not only in the Jewish community, but in the Roman. Romans had no day off, so Sunday was always a work day. And it wasn't till the mid-300s that suddenly... 
uh, Christianity was legal. Until then, Christians were persecuted constantly by the Roman Empire. Uh, they, they could finally come out, and they decided to sleep in <laughs> and have church at 11 o'clock <laughs> on Sunday. So I, I just thought I'd throw that in just to kind of let you know that this is the very first church meeting, Sunday evening. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, the ones who had arrested Jesus uh, to be crucified, Jesus came and stood among them and said, so the doors locked and Jesus walks through and stands among them and says, shalom. It's translated, peace be unto you or be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. So it's really Jesus, not, not some apparition posing as Jesus. The, G, the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Shalom. As the Father has sent me, I'm now sending you. So he's deputizing them to now go spread the good news. And he says, as he breathes on them, <sighs> to show them that the Holy Spirit is not some weird uncle of the Trinity, that the Holy Spirit is none other than the Spirit of Jesus. So when the Spirit comes into your life, he's bringing to you the person of Jesus in your life. So it's kind of an hors d'oeuvre metaphor to prepare people for what happens at Pentecost. So he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Then he says, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. Whoa. And if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now that doesn't mean we just go around forgiven, not forgiven, you, I don't like you. you uh, it, he's, he's talking about the good news, the gospel, that when we proclaim what Christ has done on the cross for people's sins and they believe, we say, you are forgiven. And they say, really? But you don't know what I've done. No, you truly are forgiven. It's always good to hear someone pronounce that, say that. But he's just saying uh, that someone who hasn't received Christ as their Lord and Savior, they're still in that quandary of what to do with their sins. What do I do with my wrong? What do I do? Just try to be good enough to earn my way into heaven? And he says here, they're, they're, the forgiveness is not there yet. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, Didymus means twin. He had a twin brother, but that twin was not one of the 12. Thomas, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So there's two disciples missing. Uh, Judas is missing. That's a different story. And Thomas was not there. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. How would you feel if you're Thomas? You just missed the most important day of millennia. <laughs> Jesus showed up and you weren't there. So he responds and he says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put 
my finger where his nails were and put my hand into his side where the sword pierced his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, can you imagine? Thomas thinks he wasn't listening. Tom, he turns to Thomas and maybe he said, hey, Tommy. <laughs> and he has this encounter. Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus told him, because you have seen, you have believed. Blessed are those, this is you, this is me, who have not seen and yet have believed. I want to take this intimate moment that Thomas has and make it your moment, your decision of what do we do with this so-called resurrected Jesus. And let's begin, just for the record, by saying that Thomas was not the only doubter. We think of Thomas as the guy everyone else believed, but Thomas was the doubter. Well, he wasn't the only one. No one believed or expected a resurrection. It just wasn't in their wheelhouse. So here's how it went. Jesus predicted that there would be a resurrection, but it wasn't his common teaching. The first encounter we have with the idea of a resurrection is when the followers of Jesus, people are gathering, and, and it's kind of becoming a signs and wonders crowd where they want Jesus to do some kind of new miracle. And Jesus is offended by that because he knows they really aren't in it for him. They're in it for the frosting, for the, for the cake and not the meal. And so he says, it's a wicked and adulterous generation that only seeks for signs. This is the only sign you're going to get, the sign of Jonah. And as Jonah was three days in the belly of a whale, three days, three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth, and that's the sign that you get. Now you can see that's kind of cryptic. Uh, is Jesus saying he's going to be swallowed by a whale? Uh, what, what is he? It's not real clear. Later on, two different instances, one about a third of the way through Jesus' ministry, so that would be about a year. The other, very close before he goes to Jerusalem, towards the end of his ministry, he tells the disciples plainly. It's recorded in a couple of uh, Gospels. In Luke chapter 9, he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes, be killed and after three days rise again. And that's the one midstream. And then at the very end of his ministry, he says, we're going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written by the prophets is about to be fulfilled. The Son of Man, referring to himself, he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, kill him. On the third day, he will rise again from the dead. 
So Jesus kind of said it. And you and I, with 2,000 years of hindsight, you and I was like, oh, there it is. How did you miss it? Well, the disciples missed it. It says in that very verse that I just read to you, the following verse says, the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. I believe it's important to establish this truth because I hear all the time kind of this pat on the head for the ancient people where we say something like this, well, you know, those people back then, they, lived, they believed in all kinds of stories, all kinds of myths, you know, uh, and so it was easy for them to make up a resurrection story. C.S. Lewis calls that chronological snobbery, where the farther you go in time that we become snobs judging the ancient world. Plato was no slouch. Aristotle was no slouch who came before Jesus. The disciples were no slouches. Everybody understood resurrections don't happen. It doesn't take a moderner to understand that. But we moderners, because we have been post-enlightenment, where we now reason and we now use science, we look back at those kind of things and say, we know better. My point is, they knew better. And isn't that the point? Resurrections don't happen. We wouldn't be here if they kind of, sort of, regularly happened. So in science, we don't believe something is true unless usually we can replicate it. And we can isolate it, replicate it, and say, ah, now we know something that, it, that we will incorporate into a new law that we know now that this happens this percentage of, of the amount of time. So they were no different than us. The disciples were not expecting the resurrection. And just as you and I think today, they thought then. No matter who starts a religion, they die. Think about it. Buddha died, right? Approximate date, 483 BC. Mohammed died. Exact date, June 8th, 638 AD. Moses died. Approximate date, 1400 BC. Confucius died. Approximate date, 479 BC. No matter how amazing you are, guess what? You die. Now, if you just stop there, you're thinking, wow, and I came for this message? (laughs) What did the pastor say? We're all going to (laughs) die. We kind of get that. It just seems to happen around us, especially the older you get. It's what we do. So... What do we do with this story about Jesus? Well, when I became a Christian, as many of you know, I wasn't raised a Christian. So for me, I was really struggling. I was was passionate about the civil rights movement as a teenager. I I believed in loving our fellow man and, and making things better for everybody and in erasing 
segregation and all of that, but I didn't know what to do with this God thing. And, and I'm ashamed of the fact that I had many conversations in high school uh, making fun of Christians because I just thought uh, there was a little bit of la-la land uh, going on there. And I was Thomas the realist. So when I became a Christian, one of my closer friends gave me a book to try to rationalize me out of my Christianity. And the book had several theories as to why you shouldn't believe in the resurrection. You know, that, that welcome to my world, people trying to talk me out of my faith. And so here are the theories that have come down through the ages post-enlightenment. Number one, the disciples stole the body. Now that's actually in scripture, that's the one that Pilate tells the guards to say, if anyone asks you, just say that the disciples stole the body. Now think of that. We're reasonable people, right? Think of it. These are 11 guys that are terrified. Jesus just got arrested and killed. Uh, this could happen to us. Peter's already lied about being a follower of Jesus. They're, they're, they're locked up in the upper room. They're keeping the door locked. But somehow, Sunday, they were emboldened. And they snuck out while it was still dark. No more Mr. Nice disciples. These are ninja kick-butt disciples <laughs> that are here to roll back a 2,000-pound stone, steal the body, create a myth so that the teachings of Jesus live on. I've already established that they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't expect it. Not only that, but they're terrified. This is not a reasonable answer. The second answer is the swoon theory. The swoon theory says that Jesus actually didn't die after being incubated in a cool tomb for three days. He felt better. <laughs> yeah, lost a lot of blood. Yeah, dehydrated. But, you know, starting to feel a little better. <laughs> so he gets up. He personally kicks open the 2,000-pound stone uh, and, and, and walks out. Rational, right? Reasonable people. So what else could it be? Well, the third theory is Mary lost her way. This works for someone from New York or L.A. <laughs> but if you've ever visited old Jerusalem, and it was much tinier then than it even is now, it would be like saying to you, in the neighborhood you grew up in, and the house that your best friend lived in, that you always went to, one day you didn't know where the house was and you went to the wrong house. It just doesn't work. They went to old Jerusalem, which was just a neighborhood, three times a year. They had aunts and uncles and cousins everywhere and they knew where everything was. They played in these different places. As kids grew up, she knew where the tomb was that Jesus had been buried. And then finally is what I call the Jonestown theory, corporate hallucination, where they all somehow drank the same Kool-Aid and they all saw Jesus 
even though he really wasn't there. They just all had the same vision at the same time. I struggled with this, and this is actually the very issue, uh, not only as a pre-believer, but even as a believer. I think everyone has had their moments of doubt. Is this really true? Is this really what I'm believing and following? So I have tried not to believe. And what I always struggle with is how did these disciples, not not only the disciples, but for 2,000 years, how did all these people die for their faith in Jesus Christ for something that never happened? Think of it. Wouldn't one of the disciples crack and say, hey, just kidding. It seemed like a good story. Don't kill me. But every one of them died because they had seen the resurrected Jesus. C.S. Lewis, who is a, a mentor of mine, not that I ever knew him, but his writings Uh, And I liked him because he allowed me to doubt and challenge everything. He was an atheist, turned eventually theist, eventually Christian. And he was an Oxford Don, no intellectual uh, slouch. But he was also an expert in mythology. That was his expertise. He's still... His book on medieval mythology is one of the classics that is still used today. I tried reading it. It's way in over my head. But he and his best friend J.R.R. Tolkien wrote myths. Narnia, Lord of the Rings, they understood the genre of myth. And C.S. Lewis records that the Gospels are not myth. They are not written in the genre of myth. They are written in the genre of eyewitness account. And as I wrestled with whether I was going to believe or not, I had to decide not whether the Bible believed in the resurrection, but whether I believed in the Bible. Because it's, it's portrayed as if it really, really happened. So the struggle is not to try to make the Bible be what I want it to be, but rather, do I believe it or not? Mary, you know, she didn't expect it. As much as we love Mary Magdalene, when Jesus first appears to her, I think it's so cool, in a day, in a macho man's world, Jesus chooses a woman. (laughs) Love that story. And she sees him, and she doesn't recognize him. She's crying. It's partially dark, and she isn't expecting him. And she supposes him to be the gardener. And he says, woman, why are you crying? And she said, they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where he is. If you can show me where he is, I will carry him away. What a big-hearted little woman. I'm going to carry him away. And then Jesus cuts through the chase and says, Mary. And you have this endearing moment where she realizes, oh, no one uses my name with that inflection. 
This is Jesus. And she grabs a hold of him, realizing she's talking to the resurrection. So it's simple to say the disciples didn't expect it. The Jews didn't expect it. Mary didn't expect it. The Romans didn't expect it. And Thomas didn't expect it. He's not alone in his doubting, right? The second point I want you to see is that Thomas' line in the sand is a good line. It sounds like it's a bad line, but having a realist who comes to faith is saying, listen, I love it when a business person, a scientist comes to faith in Jesus Christ because a realist has shown up that really demands that this has got to make somewhat of sense to me. So let's read the account again. The other disciples in verse 24 and 25 say, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas, lying in the sand, is unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nail marks, excuse me, the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Let me rephrase what he's saying there for you and I today. Because Jesus is going to say, blessed are those that believe who have not seen. The way it would read today is that unless Jesus physically rose from the dead, it makes no sense to be a Christian. I will not believe. Let me say that again. I will not believe in Jesus Christ unless he physically rose from the dead. That's kind of the line that, that Thomas is, is creating if you reword it for the 21st century. And I think that's a good line. Now, Thomas' nature has been called a doubting thing. But let me give you two instances that would try to convince you he was more a realist. One, we know from John chapter 11, when Jesus says he's going to cross the River Jordan and go close to the headquarters of Jerusalem in a little city called Bethany, and he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Thomas realizes this is bad news. This is going right next to headquarters where Jesus is going to be arrested and killed. So he responds after trying to talk Jesus out of it. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, well, let's also go that we may die with him. Now, you do think it sounds a little bit like Eeyore, right? Yeah. Winnie the Pooh, just... A thankless job. Someone's got to do it. We might as well go with Jesus and die with him. And we think of him as a half full glass, right? But he's not a pessimist. He's a realist. They really, really could die. Another instance is found in John chapter 14. The fabulous passage that we all... Are you there? Okay. Okay. Uh, this fabulous passage where Jesus is saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you where, so that where I go, you may be also. And it sounds so beautiful, and you hear it at funerals, you hear it at different places, that you know we're all going to have a place in heaven prepared for us for Jesus. 
And so most of us are just like, oh, I love the passage. So, well, Thomas interrupts Jesus and says, excuse me, but we don't know where you're going and we don't know the way. There's nothing wrong with that. If someone says, you know, I'm going to start this company, it's going to have this brand, and it's going to be doing there's nothing wrong with someone saying, how are you going to pay for that? Where are you going to raise the money? What kind of money are you? There's nothing wrong with the realist. And because he was a realist, we have a verse that we would have never had if it wasn't for Thomas. And Jesus responds to Thomas and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Aren't you glad for Thomas? <laughs> yeah, it's the realist. He would make a great referee. He would make a great umpire because he sees things the way they are. And this line in the sand, unless Jesus rose from the dead, I'm not going to be a Christian, is a good line because Paul takes this same kind of thinking in 1 Corinthians when he's writing to the Corinthians and he takes this same kind of tack. The Corinthians lived in a town much like North Coastal County. In North Coastal County, this is, I, you know, and I've lived here for 30 years, grew up in Southern California. I feel like I'm a part of it. It's me, right? And it kind of goes like this. You know, well, what you believe is real to you, and what I believe is real to me, and it's all real because we all believe whatever we want to believe, right? And it's a little bit like a, a Yoda thing that goes out there and says, you know what? Uh, you know, that, that there's these things, and we really don't understand them, and, but they're, and, and so then when we come to the resurrection, we say, well, you know, I'm sure that Jesus rose in some kind of uh, meaningful way so that he lives in everybody's hearts however they want him to live in their hearts. Right? And that way no one gets shot. That way there's no arguments. But what are we saying? It doesn't work like that in any part of life. You cannot say to your boss tomorrow morning, say, you know, in my heart, I was at work. <laughs> you know, you can't say that to the officer and say, you know, in my heart, I was going the speed limit. <laughs> but we do this with God and these ethereal things. So the apostle Paul, hearing this kind of argument from the Corinthians, he says, you know what? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, your faith is useless. And if you and your faith is useless, you are most miserable above all people because you have lived a lie and you have a false hope. Paul was a realist. So it really comes down to this in the Petri dish. Did Jesus rise again from the dead? No more spiritual mumbo jumbo. I had a friend recently, we were out at a restaurant together and it was one of those amazing moments where, you know, he asked me and said, Mark, uh, I know that you're a pastor and I know that you do these things, 
so can I ask you about what you believe? I said, sure, I'd love it. And so we went through different layers of my faith, and we got down to the resurrection. He says, so talk to me about the resurrection. Do you, in the 21st century, really believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead? And I smiled, and I said, absolutely. And he says, Mark, I know your graduate degrees and, and you're a thinking person, but you actually believe this happened. And I said, without a doubt. And he said to me, I need to come to your church. I need to explore this more. And I thought, wish everyone thought like a realist. Usually we go through the door of, well, I'm feeling a little depressed. Maybe Jesus can fix my depression. Well, I'm feeling a little guilty. Maybe Jesus can take away my guilt. Well, I'm feeling a little bit five foot seven. Maybe he can make me six foot five. Well, I'm feeling a little, and, and we have these personal needs, and I'm not mocking. We all enter through the various doors, right? Uh, but ultimately, no matter what personal need we have, we've got to come to this issue. Lying in the sand, did it happen or not. So, we come to the resolution where Thomas has absolute belief. Jesus says, Shalom, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe, my Lord and my God, because you have seen me and have believed, blessed, that's you and me, who have not seen and yet believe. So, I think this is absolute belief. I suspect Thomas was wrestling with this all week. Like, I, you know, I've never known Mary to lie and the women. I've never known the disciples to make up a story, but you know, I just can't believe it. it it isn't in my wheelhouse that people just don't get up. So Jesus shows him his hands and his side. In the Gospel of Luke, it tells us that Jesus says to the disciples, um, touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So whatever new resurrected body Jesus had that allowed him to walk through a locked door, it gives us a picture of what our new resurrected body will be one day, that we won't just simply be ghosts cruising around on clouds. Can you imagine if we got to heaven and we, we went to hug each other and we just passed through each other? <laughs> or high five and you, you, you keep missing. Say, let's try it again. Maybe we can pretend a high five, that we will have flesh and bones, but it's going to be a, a re revived constitution of who we are. It doesn't mean that it's not you, right? And this is Jesus. And when we see him, he will have the prince in his hands. This is forever the scar of love for you and me. The scars of love 
And so then Jesus says to the disciples in the Luke account, he says, do you have any fish? You know, today I would have just said, you got some donuts or something. But he says, do you have any fish? He says, ghosts don't eat fish. So they give him a piece of broiled fish. He takes it and eats it in their presence. So I don't know what they did to watch him swallow. (laughs) You know, with CAT scan eyes, they're watching to see if they can see this go down his esophagus or not. And they realize, he's real. it's, It's real Jesus. He really did get up. So Jesus says to Thomas, stop doubting. And Thomas becomes the uber believer. He becomes the consummate believer because he realizes it's Jesus. And Jesus, even with the line that he had drawn in the sand, Jesus crosses the line and says, it's me. Think how much respect Thomas has now for the resurrection, right? And it's thanks to Thomas, the realist. Let me ask you a question. I give you a hammer, and you say, wow, cool hammer. I give a hammer to someone who's slammed their thumb with a hammer. Which one has more respect for the hammer? Right? The one who slammed his thumb with the hammer. It's like, whoa, that's a hammer. That's a real hammer. I'm going to honor and respect this. So Thomas has this uber respect now for the resurrection. Now, here is the fish or cut bait moment. Here is the put up or shut up moment. Here is the get in or get out. And this is where you come in. This will be audience participation. Because I think every one of us has to sometime in our lifetime come to a decision about Jesus. Where we move from mamsy-pamsy, we move from squishy-wishy to uh, just kind of whatever, you know, and this Yoda thing to did it happen or not? I've got to decide. And Thomas's fish or cut bait moment is resolved when he says, my Lord and my God. In that moment, he realizes everything Jesus has taught for three years. You know, people say Jesus was just a good teacher. Everything he taught was true. And one of the things he taught was that he was the son of God. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Whoa. Resurrection All teaching is true. It means that all of the things he did, not only the multiplying of bread and loaves, I mean, bread and fish, loaves and bread would normally be the same. Um, (laughs) The stilling of the, the storm, be still. The walking on water, the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead, the raising of Lazarus, It all flashes before his eyes, and he realizes, oh my gosh, this is God. 
his, the virgin birth, it all comes together in a moment. I get it. We thought Messiah was just going to be a good man, a good teacher, a good deliverer, but Messiah is divine, the Son of God. Now, those of you that are Jewish, you know that a Jewish person does not attribute deity to any man. The Lord our God is one. And for him to come to this decision, my Lord and my God, was not an easy decision. Mordecai in the book of Esther was willing to die over this issue, to bow his knee to no one. So for Thomas to bow his knee before Jesus, it is a big, big deal. And what I love about this is it's not just a conversion, it's an allegiance. He pledges his allegiance to Jesus by saying, my Lord, my God. Last night I came home and... uh, some of you know that if I feel the sermon went well, I, uh, I say to Jan, let's watch a movie. And if I feel the sermon went horrible, then I slip my wrists and I, I, I go up to my study and I said, let's try this again. Where did I go wrong? And so uh, she knew it went well. I think there was a dozen people that gave their hearts and lives to Christ I think there was a hundred people on the beach today, not just that got baptized, but stood up to pledge their allegiance to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So I came home and I was feeling pretty good. And I turn on the TV to find out what good movies were on and couldn't find any. So I went to PBS and found Les Mis uh, was playing, you know, a weekly version of it, and uh, so I come in Les Miserables to this point where Jean-Paul Jean has stolen from the priest, you know the story, he's stolen from the priest, he's an ex-convict, he's still a thief, he's stolen from a man of God, (laughs) what kind of person would do this? And he, he's caught, and he's brought back to the priest, and then the constables say, we caught him. And the, and the priest said, uh, I gave him to him. And Jean-Paul Jean, you forgot the candlesticks, and puts the candlesticks in his hands, and Jean-Paul Jean is thinking, you're an idiot, man. You know? And, and he, the priest says to him, you know, I just bought you. I just bought you with kindness. I bought you with the love of God. This is my paraphrase. And this is going to haunt you now until you give your heart and life to Jesus. Now, that's my interpretation of it, right? And so he goes off, and he's just, he's got his silver and everything else. And he comes across this little boy, and this little boy is whistling and flipping a coin. And Jean-Paul Jean, right in the middle of the wilderness under the tree, He strikes up a conversation with the boy. When the boy drops the coin, he puts his foot on the coin. The boy says, give me my silver coin. And and Jean-Paul Jean, the darkest heart, you can imagine, says, no. He picks up the coin, and suddenly, the words of the priest haunt him. 
he just can't keep going like this. And there in the fields, Jean-Paul Jean falls on his knees and surrenders his life to God. And that's what's happening in Thomas's life right here. He's surrendering. He's saying it's all true. So this conversion becomes his declaration of allegiance to Jesus. So one of my bucket lists as I went to Israel this time was to go to Egypt and to see Mount Sinai. I always pictured Moses and the crowd facing north and looking at this great mountain. And it turned me around when I realized they were all to the north of the mountain facing south. I thought, wow, it's not how I pictured it. And it brought me back to that moment where Moses sees the burning bush, right? And it's not consumed. And he goes aside to find out what's up with this bush. And the voice speaks to him out of the bush and says, uh, take off your shoes, for the ground you're on is holy ground. And uh, Moses begins to inquire into God. He says, who are you? And, and what he's thinking is how we think today. Are you the God that delivers me from my sin? Are you the God that delivers me from my depression? Are you the God that fixes my marriage? Are you the God that makes me wealthy and healthy? Are you, which, which, are you the God of the Nile? Are you the God of the sky? Are you the God of the ocean? How do I pigeonhole you? What file do I put you in? Would you like to stay in my guest room of my palatious house? We can make room for you, God. So who are you? And God answers and says, I am who I am. The famous answer of Popeye. <laughs> I am that I am. And what does he mean? I'm not the God of the Nile and the sky and the God of Egypt, the God of Palestine. I am God. And I define you and you don't define me and you don't put me into your little file. You're in my file. And Moses realizes he's signed up to follow a God that's way bigger than he ever thought. And that's the good news of the resurrection. I'm telling you, if you've been a Christian for 40 years now, and I know you know this Bible verse, and you follow this, and you're already thinking about me, and say, well, this is a good message, but he left out that verse, and he could have done better here, and this, 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 this. I want to tell all of us that God is bigger than you know. Your God construct, no matter how amazing you are, God is still bigger. And the resurrection takes us to this big, big, big God. And that's who you're following. Ain't nothing he can't do. So the story of Thomas doesn't end here. And those of you from India would know because Thomas, though many of the disciples went west to give us our western Christianity, Thomas went east to India and started the first church in India, southern part of India. There's a movie being made about Thomas. It's, it's a fabulous story and the price that he paid and, and how he was killed there bringing the gospel 
into the land of India because it's true. Go forth, whoever you forgive is forgiven. Take the good news everywhere because the resurrection is true. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the truth of the resurrection. We are here to celebrate that Jesus, you got up. And this morning while we're praying, while our heads are bowed, I want to give each of us an opportunity to decide with Thomas, who is this Jesus? Some of us here, we've never made a decision. And you actually are aware that Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart. Some of us, we made a decision a long time ago. But our Christian faith has become really mamsy-pamsy. We sit on a fence. We've lost the clarity and crispness of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Whatever the reason, I want to give each of us an opportunity to soul search. And on this day, what better day than Easter to make a decision for Jesus? So in the quietness of this moment, while the rest of the heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if, if that's you today, would you raise your hand where you are and just decide, I'm, no, I'm going for Jesus. And just as it, Thomas did, he is my Lord and God. I'm getting off the fence. I don't care what other people think. This is my decision today to surrender my life. Just raise your hand where you are. And yes, God bless you. God bless you over here to my right. Thank you. A couple of you way in the back near the wall. Thank you. Any over here to my left. Yes, God bless you over against the wall. Any in the middle here? Is that a hand I see? Yes, God bless you as well down here. Any others? Yes, God bless you over here to my right. This is for you. I'm not going to ask you to do anything, stand up and sing or uh, anything. This is just for you to decide. We've got to do something to decide. I have decided to follow Jesus. Anyone else? Yes, thank you. Love the boldness. Thank you. My Lord and my God. If you raise your hand this morning, I want you to pray with me quietly as I pray it out loud. Lord, come into my life. Lord, you know me. Just as you knew Mary and you knew Thomas, you know me by name. You know the good, the bad, and the ugly. Everything about me. And so just as I am, I come to you. I push all of me to the foot of the cross. And I ask you, Lord, to forgive me, cleanse me, take the stuff of my life and rearrange it and make me new. Forgive me of all of my sin. And now, Lord, 
Freshly fill me with your Holy Spirit, just as you breathed on the disciples. Breathe on me, O God, and make me new. Empower me to hear your voice and to make new decisions that are in line with you. Let's do this together. For from this day forward, I am a follower of yours, Jesus, my Lord and my God. In your name, amen. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.